Amen. So question for you. How does it feel when things are out of control in your life? Is it a good feeling? Do we like that feeling when things are out of control? Raise your hand if you are in complete control of every single thing in your life. Oh, no takers, huh? That's not true, because then you'd immediately have to repent if you raised your hand. There is only one who is in complete and total control over every single thing in our lives. And that is God. That is our creator. That is our heavenly father. This is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And the doctrine of God's sovereignty is something we hold very highly here at Highlands Bible Church. And that essentially means that God is in complete control over every single thing in his creation. There is not, as my friend R.C. Sproul says, a maverick molecule. There's nothing. There's not an atom that does not do what he tells it to do. There's not an ant that walks across the sidewalk that doesn't do it because it was ordained by God. Every single thing. We proclaim God's sovereignty. The Bible proclaims God's sovereignty from cover to cover. So what? So how does that affect my nine to five? How does that affect my schooling, which starts next week, right? How does that affect raising kids or working or taking care of my elderly parents or whatever it is? Paul is going to tell us all about that today. So if you're not there already, head over to Acts. Acts. I did it again. I got Acts on the brain. I did that two weeks ago. Romans. I'm not even looking at Acts. Acts is nowhere near anything. Romans. These things make my wife worry. They really do. Worry more, I should say. Last week, Elder Paul continued his mini-series in 1 John. Again, thank you, Paul, for your faithful exposition and feeding of the church. This week, we return to Romans. We continue in chapter 8, where Paul has been teaching his master class on the doctrine of assurance. Assurance, that rock-solid and certain hope that God will fulfill the promises that he has made. We stated in chapter 8, in the beginning, that the Holy Spirit assures us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We said that the Holy Spirit also assures us that we are adopted into God's family. What will be our assurance this week? And we're going to start in a very familiar territory, territory of prayer. Look at verse 26 of Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We see the first word, likewise, which links it to the previous text in context, of course. We are continuing with assurance. We're continuing with the work of the Holy Spirit here. Paul says that likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. How does the Spirit help us in our weakness? One commentator writes, well, the word weakness means to uh, come to the aid of, to join with, to help, to bear a burden alongside. And just pausing, church, we can pick up encouragement right here from this. We can unpack that statement. Our God does not stand far off. He draws near to help us. God is the only true God, right? But also the biblical God is the only God, the only religion that doesn't just present a transcendent God, one that is over every single thing in his creation. But the biblical God is also imminent. The biblical God is also with us. 
The very hairs of your head are numbered. I have 12, as of this morning. He knows everything about us, and he's also over everything. And so the Holy Spirit comes to our aid and joins with us to bear our burden. What burden? He says weakness. Other translations have infirmities. Well, what are our weaknesses and our infirmities? In a general sense, we know that our infirmity is sin. We're plagued with sin. We can't get away from it. We've been spending lots of time talking about that, the curse of sin. Last time we talked, we talked about the world. It's groaning under the weight of sin, and we are also groaning under the weight of sin. So one of our weaknesses is straight up sin. But in a more specific sense, this is regarding our weakness in context in prayer. And that's what Paul goes on to say. He says, for or because, how many times has Paul said for in Romans? About a million. Because... We don't know how we should pray as we ought. Paul says one of our weaknesses is just flat out we fail to know how to pray. Meaning, not so much the format of our prayers, like the words we use or the position or what direction we're facing or anything like that. He's not talking about that. But we fall short in knowing the will of God and how to pray along with that. In the Greek, this has the sense of that we don't know what is necessary to pray for in this situation. But there's great news, church. The Holy Spirit does. And we have the Holy Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. To intercede is to go on behalf of someone else and plead their case, to speak for them in a way that they could not speak for themselves. You ever have one of those friends that like doesn't speak clearly? He tries to say something and you're just like, what? And somebody has to say, and say, no, it's okay. I speak Steve. Sorry, I was looking at you. What Steve is really trying to say is this, right? No, well, that's your job now, officially, right? It's kind of a microcosm of what, what, what's going on here. The Spirit intercedes and speaks for us. Verse 26 tells us the Spirit intercedes for us without words. Groaning's too deep for words. Married folks, you can relate to this, right? Melanie knows a thought before I know my thought. We can communicate without words. We have that, that wavelength. We see the intimacy of the Trinity here at church. We see the Spirit and, and the Father, just the way that they are, the communication, the sweet intimacy in the Trinity. Right? And He helps us. The assurance that God is helping us in our weakness, even in the very act of prayer. Some understand this to be speaking in tongues, which is nonsense. Uh, this context, it's impossible for this to be speaking in tongues. It's the spirit that's doing the groaning in the first place, not us. And second of all, tongues, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is for some of the believers. This is talking about all of the believers. So this is not talking about tongues. Verse 27 sheds a little more light on the beauty of what's actually going on here. There's another person in the mix, the one whom the Holy Spirit's pleading with these groanings that are too deep for words. He who searches the hearts, the text says, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, Christians, in accordance with the will of God. This is God the Father. So we see this picture. The Holy Spirit interceding for the saints with God the Father. Right? The Spirit knows the perfect mind and the perfect will of the Father, and the Father knows our hearts, it says. And see how that, that works together? We put it all together, we see the Spirit's interceding for us to the Father who knows our hearts. The Spirit knows the will of God perfectly, where we do not. And the Holy Spirit then perfectly prays for us to the Father without even using words. 
He translates the desires of our hearts, these things that we're trying to put into words, and he translates them perfectly into God's will for us. The first point I'll say this, through the Spirit, then, believers can be confident that our prayers are aligned with God's will. Through the Spirit, we can be confident. Believers can be confident that our prayers are aligned with God's will. Every Christian prays, I hope. Bible 101 here, right? Every Christian prays, right? And I bet anybody in this room, everybody in this room could say, there have been times where I don't know what to pray for. I don't, I, 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 I don't know. I don't even know how to put this into words. Just as I was writing this, we got another update from the Green Pond Prayer Chain, and one of our dearest friends went back into the hospital again for his battle with cancer. And she's like, I've gone to the throne of God so many times, and I was just like right then and there. I'm like, I don't know, I, I don't know, what, to, I don't know what to pray, God. I don't know how to pray for this. We have these situations where we, we, we can't find the right words. And guess what? That's okay. The Holy Spirit always has the right words. We don't know God's will. And sometimes our prayers are presumptuous even of what we think. We go into the, into the throne room, we burst in there, kick the door open and say, God, this is a problem and I've done a PowerPoint presentation on three things that you need to do by Tuesday. I've figured it all out. I just need you to do it for me, okay? I often wonder, he's got, he's got to have his finger on the red button right there. Going, really? Oh, 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 this is what you want me to do for you. Okay. How presumptuous sometimes. Now, listen, here comes the caveat, right? Flashing lights and caveat. That doesn't mean that we don't ask for God what we want, okay? That's the grace. That's the beauty of this whole thing. Ask for God. Scripture tells us pray at all times with all kinds of requests. Don't worry about cleaning up your prayer requests when you're in your prayer closet with God. Just let it go. He's going to clean it up. That's what this is saying. He's going to make this match with his will. And God even uses our weaknesses then to drive, him to, to drive us to him in prayer in the first place. Calvin puts it like this, For God does not afflict them with misery that they might inwardly feed on hidden grief, but that they might disburden themselves by prayer and thus exercise their faith. Calvin says that's the point of being afflicted. Not so that you're just overcome with grief and despair, so that you take your burden off when you go to God in prayer. That's the point. But then we pray, and the reality is no one prays perfectly in line with the will of God, and we've, we've got to have this open-handed attitude when we go to God in prayer. We disburden ourselves, so to speak, of the trial. We lay it at God's feet And again, we're even free to request how. We say, Lord, this is what seems good to me. Could you resolve this in this way? But we always want to leave that open-handed. We leave it to him in his perfect will, as Jesus did in the garden. Remember Jesus? This is exactly what this is talking about. Jesus says, if there's any other way that this could be done, any other way, without me going to the cross, let's, let's do it that way. And then what did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Church, that should be the tagline of every single one of our prayers. We've got to, got to back off on the presumptuous prayers. And let God be God. 
But we also have the huge encouragement that God knows that we won't pray perfectly according to his will. So he's given us his Holy Spirit as assurance that our prayers will be prayed to him by the Holy Spirit in such a way that they will always be answered for our good, not necessarily what we ask for. The Apostle Paul is speaking of this in complete and perfect personal experience. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the incident with the thorn in the flesh. Verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 7, or 12 rather. It says, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times he goes to God in prayer and says, here's my idea, get rid of it. But he said to me, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Apostle Paul himself knows what this feels like. He goes to God. He asks him to remove whatever this was, whatever thorn in the flesh it was, whether it was a medical ailment or whatever else. And God said no. And what did he learn from that? Contentment. He was forced to learn that when he is weak, God is strong. That was not the answer Paul wanted, was it? He wanted that thorn gone, yet God let it stay. Holy Spirit in that situation interpreted Paul's prayers to the Father and said, what Paul really says, what Paul really needs to be matched to your will, Lord, what Paul really needs in order for you to do this other stuff that he now knows to grow in holiness and sanctification is leave the thorn in. And that's what he got. That's what God wanted for him. That was God's perfect will for him. Schreiner writes this. He says, Believers then should take tremendous encouragement of the will of God as being fulfilled in their lives, despite their weaknesses and inability to know what to pray for, for God's will is not frustrated because of the weakness of believers. It is fulfilled because the Spirit intercedes for us and invariably receives affirmative answers to his prayers. Could you imagine if everything was up to us just to say the right magic words to God to unlock what was best for us, we'd be disasters. We don't know. We don't know what is, what's God's will for us. And he's given us this Holy Spirit to intercede for the Father in that way so that we always get what we need. Not necessarily what we want, but we always get what we need. It's like this. I'm praying for something. God hears my prayer. The Holy Spirit communicates and translates that to the Father without words, and it always matches the perfect will of God. So Holy Spirit, being God, always gets a yes because he always knows what the will of God is. We do not. But please hear me again. That does not mean that we should be shy of asking God for specific things. For God to work things out the way we see it as wise. For us, this is more of the heart posture that we have before God in prayer. It's more of God, your God. Here's my heart. Here's what I want. Here's every ugly bit of my heart. But I want what you want. 
Don't be afraid to pour out your hearts before God. He understands that. Ask for all things. Believe it to the will, the perfect will of God. We do that together in corporate prayer, like 6 p.m. tonight in the office. You can join us if you would like. Shameless plug. What happens, though, when we pray for these things? If, I should say, when, like Paul, we pray for these things, and we get the complete opposite of what we asked for. Or we get a situation that we don't want, and we've been praying for something, and we're like, God, did you not hear, did you not get the email that I sent about how I wanted this to go? No? What, what do we do then? One of the most famous verses of all Christianity will help us understand that. Look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If you've been a believer for more than five minutes, you've heard this verse. Everyone knows this verse. And everyone hates this verse. Because it's like, all things? Well, just the good things. He means just the good things. That, that's what he works for my good, not the, not the bad things. The bad things just are stuff that goes wrong. Even the things that don't seem good, God works for our good. Some of us have had well-meaning brothers and sisters quote this verse while we're struggling and we want to physically attack them. So we have to interpret this verse correctly. First, let's look at the first part. And we know. Now we think now we hope, not that we're pretty sure, not on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. We know, factually, it is a surety. We have assurance, the whole theme of chapter 8, that whatever he says is true, right? How do we know for a fact then? Well, when we get there, we, we have a, a, before we get there, rather, we have a qualifier. We have a condition. This assurance of what we know is not for every single human being on the planet. This assurance, this condition of what we know, he says what? For those who love God. This assurance is for Christians. This assurance is for believers in Christ. Now, don't take that for those who love God to be a certain level of loveness that you have to get up to, right? I think I love God 50% today, so probably this isn't going to work. No, that's not what that means. It's Bible shorthand for those who love God are Christians, so great news. Christians, this applies to you and only to you. It does not apply to those who are not Christians. So we have factual knowledge that applies to Christians. And what is it? That all things work together for good. All things in the Greek is very, very complicated. I will try my best to bring, some of you know what's coming, right? It'll, I'll try my best to bring it down to in a way that we can understand. All things means, track with me here, all things means all things. It means everything. Every single thing that happens in our lives. God works together for good. Humanistically speaking, we try to grab onto that and say everything happens for a reason. Well, yes. God's reasons. Every single thing. It's God's sovereignty. But for now, let's realize that God is in total control, right, of every single molecule in the universe. He's in charge of every single thing in our lives, good, bad, and different, and they're being worked out for our good. 
There has been massive debates about what's going on with the working. Some translations say God works all things together for good. Other things say all things work together for the good. To me, it's another just overblown debate of just like, come on, the things aren't working by themselves, people. God's working the things. And God's working together in those things. It's the Greek sunergos, to work together. God's working in that. Also, very good coffee if you ever get to Louisville, right? It means to co-labor towards a common goal. God and all things are working together for your good. But over and above this is the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Things can't work by themselves for our good. God has to be the one that works them. And so God has to be in complete control of all things in order to do that. Commentator Murray puts it like this, why do all things work for good? It's the action of God involved in their call, which is the guarantee that such will be the result. Because God's involved, it happens. And because God's involved, it's going to be good, no matter what it might look like. Put the pieces together, church. For Christians and only Christians who are loved and called, right? God is causing all things to work in accordance with his perfect will. All things. For Christians, God is working all things together for our good. Even the things we don't see as good. We have assurance. Remember Paul's word. We know that he is working all things for our good. Second point, believers can be certain that God is working all situations for good. Cancer. God is working for my good. Chronic illness. God is working for my good. COVID, God is working for my good. The woke agenda, God is working for my good. My marriage, my parenting, my job, my house, all things, God is working for good. Let's get something really, really straight here. This verse does not mean that we have to have some twisted, crazy, again, Ned Flanders look on this that says, cancer is good. No. Chronic illness is not good. Cancer is not good. The woke agenda is definitely not good. This doesn't mean we have to just go stone-faced and call the bad things good. No, call the bad things bad. They're hard. Call those situations hard. We lament in those situations. We despise those situations. But God is good in the midst of those situations. We've got to separate that out very, very clearly. We also need to realize that sometimes we can get our wheels sunk in the mud so deep by our own bad decisions and our own unwise decisions that then we go to God with this giant dumpster fire and we say, fix this. You said you're going to work all things together for good, so fix this. He's like, yeah, okay, but... Can we talk about all those bad decisions you made? Can we talk about all the sin that you did that complicated this? Can I talk about maybe the unwise choice you made in a job or a, a spouse? Or can I talk about all these, these habits that you have that are sinful habits? Can I talk about your lack of spiritual disciplines? And you wonder why you feel far away from me? Church, we need to own up to a lot of our responsibility here. There's a lot that we need to own and we need to do it. And sometimes we just shun all that and sometimes we just sink ourselves in sin and then we look at this verse and we plaster it and put it on a t-shirt and say, God, the idea is we want to make wise decisions. We want to make decisions that go along with God's will. 
right? And if you're in any of those situations, right, God is gracious and he does work all things for good. There's never a tap out point. There's never a tap where God's going to go, well, I don't know, look who you married, so I can't help. I don't know. Sorry. Better luck next time. No, God can work in all of those situations, right? There are, of course, situations that come upon us that we have no direct responsibility for. You got sick because you got sick. Someone sinned against you and complicated your life with grief and pain. The company downsized. A client refused to pay you or stole from you. There are external factors that we can't control that press in on our lives and we feel the pressure and we say, is God really working all these things for our good, for my good? Really? Yes. We can know that for certain. The amount of times that I have to say that as a pastor to people because we lose sight of that. People come in and see me all the time. Is God, I wonder if God, yes. Here's the situation. I wonder if God is doing, yes. A million times, yes. God is involved in the situation. God's not taking a break. He's directly working this situation. But it doesn't seem very good. I know. God wants to bring good from it. Packer puts it this way, we are able to apply to ourselves the promise that all things work together for good to them that love God, not just some things, all things. Every single thing that happens to us expresses God's love to us, comes to us for the furthering of God's purpose for our lives, for us. None of that means anything unless we know that God is sovereign and we know God is good and God loves us. If we know someone has our best interests in heart, at heart, we are going to trust them completely, aren't we? Even when things don't look so good. That's what God wants from us. Even when things don't look so good, he says, trust me. I'm here. I'm going to work this for good. Just work with me. Don't work against me. Again, the Bible teaches from cover to cover that all this hinges on God's sovereignty. Believers should have the sense that God loves them, he is good, and he can be trusted, and he is sovereign. This has to be our anchor in the midst of whatever storm that life is throwing at us. We can say, okay, this situation's not good. Sometimes people just have a big relief when we can say that with each other. This situation is terrible. Yes, let it be terrible, and let's go to God with it. So two questions shake out of this. How do we know what is true and what does good actually mean? And Paul answers those questions in context. Look at verse 29. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay, if you have a writing implement there, handy, take it out. In the margin of your Bible, in the text, in the margin, draw a square bracket between verse 28 and verse 29 and connect those two verses. And promise Pastor Mike that you will never, ever quote verse 28 apart from verse 29. Okay? We promise? You can write in your Bibles, by the way. Why? You cannot understand verse 28 without verse 29. You can't. Verse 29 tells you what verse 28 means. And so remember, two questions. How do we know this is true, and what does good mean? First question, how do we know this is true? He says, because look at God's sovereign plan and salvation. 
How do you know God's sovereign? How do you know he can work all situations for good? Well, look at how he saved you. First of all, he foreknew you. Before you were born, he knew you. Okay? When we come to faith in Christ, it's not a surprise to the Almighty God. He's the one up there that is bringing all things to bring you to himself because he foreknew you, and as Paul said, because you're elect, which is correct. All things. How do we know that God can do this? Paul says, well, look at salvation. For, right? He foreknew you. And this is all over the New Testament. Look in Ephesians, for example, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, foreknew that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Church, God is completely sovereign over all things, including your salvation. It's if you're a Christian today, it's because he knew you would be a Christian the moment you were born, and he did all things in order to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ. That's our God. The opposite of that is that we think we have some role in salvation, otherwise known as Arminianism, right? God saved me because he was pretty sure he thought I would say yes. No. God made you say yes because you're his child. That's what we're talking about here. God is sovereign over all things, and the evidence that he brings first is he's sovereign over our salvation. He chose us. He foreknew us. And so what about the second question? Well, we answered the first question. How can this be true? Because God is sovereign over all things, including salvation. The second question is, what is good? Verse 29 defines the good. Look at verse 29 again. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, here we are again. Every week we get here. Why? What is good? Sanctification. What is good? Holiness. What is the good? That we grow to look more like Jesus Christ. The problem that we all run into when we get to verse 28 is we say God works all things together for the good. And we close our Bibles and we say, cool, it is good that this happens. I have decided this is good. Therefore, that I will apply this to, ver- that's called eisegesis. You're reading into the text what you want it to say. Whereas if you kept reading, you would see God defines the good. The good is that we become more like Jesus Christ. The good is we grow in holiness. The good is we grow in sanctification. So church, let me ask this. Can God use cancer to grow us more into the image of Jesus Christ? Absolutely yes. Can God use chronic illness to do that? Absolutely yes. Can God use a marriage that's in conflict to do that? 100% yes. Can God use parenting situations that make you want to go crazy? Yes, 100%. You see now what he's talking about? You see how we substitute our own idea of good and stick it right in there and say, God works all things together for the good. Keep reading. He defines the good. It's holiness. Therefore, yes, All things can work for our holiness. All things, church. The good is our sanctification. 
So you could summarize verse 28 and 29 like this. For we know that God sovereignly causes all things to work together for my growth in holiness. And he says, even he ties it that that will bring glory to God, like when Christ was the firstborn among many brothers. He says at the end of verse 29, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It talks about his, to a certain extent, his resurrection, but really more his preeminence. That as we are, as we're being transformed more into the image of Jesus Christ, his glory is seen in us. We radiate God's glory, and we share in the glory of him as preeminent as the Son of God. So, does growth and holiness only include those situations that are all puppies and rainbows? No, of course not. Actually, I would say that growth and holiness is a lot more in those situations that are dark, in those situations that are hard, those situations where we have no choice but to trust God. And then church for Christians, oh my goodness, how much does that change our perspective? When we're in the middle of that valley, to understand that that valley is not meaningless, that God is doing something, that God is doing this work in us, even in the valley, oh my gosh, that is encouragement. To waste, he knows he wastes nothing, especially the dark situation. Spurgeon said he does his best work in the dark. That's what we have to remember when we're in the midst of it. Usually it's the trials and tribulations which cause us to grow the most in holiness, knowing again that we can take the assurance that it will be for our good. Look at verse 30. And for those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is like a big Bible word buffet in here. Those he predestined, right? There is the idea of, of course, yes, we are predestined for salvation. But actually, in context, he doesn't really mean predestined for salvation. He means predestined for sanctification, right? We're definitely both. But he's talking about we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, right? God knows and predestined is to destine something pre, beforehand, right? That's what that means, to ordain something. God ordains all things beforehand. Those he predestined, he called, meaning he made sure we heard the call of the gospel and we responded. Jesus tells us that no one comes to the Father except when the Father draws him. So the call of the gospel goes out and we respond to that call. We are called. It's all over the New Testament. Read some of Paul's introductions of the letters of his epistles. He also then justified. We all know what justified means because we've been all over it for five chapters. It means to be declared innocent. It's what God does. He brings us from guilty to innocent. This is, then he also justifies us and one day he will glorify us, right? Glorified is, is like it's already happening because we are transformed into a new person, but there's also one day we will be totally glorified when we're like him and we will live with him forever. This is the unbreakable golden chain of salvation. You can't all of these pieces are included when we are a Christian. All of the links of the chain are included. Why? Because it's all a work of God. And Paul says again, how do you know he's going to work all things together for good? Look at salvation. Look at what he does. Third point, believers can be sure that God will complete the work he started. Believers can be sure that God will complete the work that he started. In the, in the Greek, 
when I was translating this, I was just like, that's it. They're, they're in the most boring, factual verb tense there is. All of them. They're just like, here we are. It's just a fact. Nothing else to it. Something that happened in the past, and that's just the way that it is. Every single one. Why? Because God did it in the past for you if you're, a, if you're a, a son or daughter of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian. He did it in the past. If you're a Christian, right? He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. And he's glorified you. No questions asked. We know we have assurance because God does it. God will complete the work that he started. Christian, God knew you before you even knew yourself, before you were even born. He saved you. He will cause you to persevere in all things. He will bring good from them, meaning our holiness, and he will see you home. One study Bible put it like this, we could not be more secure. Reflecting on this, our hearts are calmed as we give glory to God for the utter stability of our deliverance. Piper puts it like only Piper can. Once you walk through the door of love into the massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8.28, everything changes. There come into your life stability and depth and freedom. You simply can't be blown over anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs for your good all the pain and all the pleasures that you will ever experience is an incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in your life. Just feel that? And that comes from God. That comes from the sovereignty of God, not the sovereignty of us. That's where it runs up against everything that we hate, right? Because we're in charge of our own lives. We're in charge of our own deaths. We're Americans for crying out loud. We're, we decide what's right. No, God does. And it's for our good and for our best. And we can trust him. And exhibit A is what he's done in salvation. Believers can be sure that God will complete the task that he started. And the foundation of this is the, the massive sovereignty of God. Maybe you're thinking of Philippians 1.6, which said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So church, let me ask you this. Now that we know how God can fulfill this promise of working all things for good, and we know what good actually means, is there any situation that God cannot bring good out of? Absolutely not. Is there any phase of life from a young Christian to a dear elderly saint that this promise does not apply to? Are there any vocations or seasons of life where this promise is on hold? And so what? What does that mean for us? Just a couple points of application as we close this morning. First, straight talk. None of this applies to you if you're not a Christian. This is a conditional promise. So if you're not a Christian become a Christian. <laughs> if you're not a Christian, understand what this means. Repent, turn from your sins, trust him, and seek to live a life with him as your king. Then this applies to you. But second, Christians, church, two questions. Do you have this perspective on your life, and do you have this perspective on your God? What I mean by each of those, first, do you get that as a Christian, each and every situation from your drive to work 
to the 49th diaper that you've changed today, to the interactions that you have with your wife, to your colleagues, to your financial problems, to getting fired from your job, to whatever it is, fall under this umbrella of God's sovereignty that he will work all things for good. All things. I see it so often that we live this bifurcated life. We're like, well, God's in the good stuff. And then the bad stuff is just, I don't know, maybe Satan won that day. The bad stuff is just maybe something went wrong. Bad stuff is uh, maybe it's a satanic attack. I don't know what it is. No, 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 no. God is over all things. He is sovereign over all things. Do you have that perspective on your lives? So many Christians, I worry, are walking around with a functional agnosticism. We might say God is the sovereign God of the universe. We might say on Sunday, you might agree with bald Pastor Mike this morning and say, yes, God is sovereign over all things. And then we walk out that door and then act like we are sovereign over all things. That's not how this works. Do you have that perspective on your life? And second, do you have that perspective on your God? Meaning, do you actually see him? Now, you know when I'm running late, when the Methodists crank up the bells, right? Do you actually see him as absolutely, entirely, completely, totally sovereign over every aspect of your life? Do you have that perspective on our God? Or are you restricting God in some way, trying to keep him in his zone? Arthur Pink said in his book, The Sovereignty of God, this applies to our attitude, and it should reflect five things. Godly fear, implicit obedience, complete resignation to it, deep thankfulness and joy and adoring worship. The doctrine of God's sovereignty should grow fruit in our lives and bear fruit all over the place. Do you have that perspective of your God? The right view of God's sovereignty fuels a fulfilled Christian's life. And that's what I want to leave you with this morning. We can and we should rest our heads on our pillows every single night knowing that we sleep under the banner of God's sovereignty. That God is completely and totally in control over everything. Chapter 8 has been about assurance, and we will continue with more assurance next week. But what is our ultimate assurance? Here's the big idea. God's sovereignty is our ultimate assurance. God's sovereignty is our ultimate assurance. God's sovereignty is tough. It's tough for us because we think we're in charge and we're not. It's tough because it's in the air that we breathe. Yet we live as sometimes as functional agnostics. Yet there are churches that flat out deny the sovereignty of God. I quoted John MacArthur on the podcast this week, and he said, if you have trouble uh, understanding, or what what was the word? If you have trouble accepting that God is sovereign, imagine if he's not. There's no middle ground here. Either he's sovereign over all things, or he's not. He's not sovereign over some things. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He's creator God. If he exists, he has to be sovereign over all things. He does exist, by the way, just clearing that up. Has to be sovereign over all things. Think about the possibility of him not being sovereign. If he isn't sovereign, we can't be confident that our prayers will be aligned with his will. If he isn't sovereign, we can't be certain that God is working all things for our good. If he isn't sovereign, we can't be sure that God will complete the work that he started. 
What is your ultimate assurance? It has to be trust in a faithful, good, and loving, sovereign God. That is our ultimate assurance. And that's the pillow of truth that we as Christians have to lay our heads on every single night. Father, we thank you for your goodness. This text is so deep and so rich, and we thank you for it, Lord. Help us. We, we pray. We ask, Lord, along with your will. We know this is your will, that we would grow in holiness, that we would live a, more, a life that is more accepting of your sovereignty, a life that is trusting you. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.